Well, we're in James chapter 5 today, uh, continuing in our series in James. If uh, you haven't been here for very long, we're mostly in Hebrews, but uh, we kind of jump back and forth a little bit here. So we're in James 5, getting near to the end of this book. And um, in today's sermon, we see that God wants us to ask him for the things that we need. He wants us, his children, to have hearts that naturally incline to him. And uh, let me begin just with uh, a story here. I've been reading recently a biography of uh, Ulysses S. Grant, one of our presidents in the mid-1800s, an American president. And Grant was an interesting figure because he, uh, he, he was very successful in, uh, as a general. Of course, he was uh, one of the Union generals in the American Civil War, and uh, after after the war, he was uh, highly decorated, recognized, and the, the very next uh, election after the war, uh, he was uh, he was sort of a shoe in for the for the presidency. He was well loved, well respected, uh, started as a common man, and and came up. So, it's interesting though that. After his presidency, he fell back into, from some kind of uh, uh, unfortunate business dealings, he fell into total poverty. And he, uh, towards the end of his life, he's like $100,000 in debt, which in the mid-1800s is uh, it's catastrophic, of course. And on towards the end of his life, it was actually uh, it was uh, the famous railroad tycoon Vanderbilt who had lent, lent him this money. And uh, Grant lost the money, and Vanderbilt says, you know, it's okay. You don't have to pay me back. Uh, I'm not going to require it from you. And Grant, being the sort of hardworking, up-by-your-own-bootstraps American, says, no, no, I will. I'm going to pay back every last cent. And he turns to writing, of all things. Pretty good writer, all sorts of interesting stories from his life. And he seeks to earn the money. He eventually publishes a biography uh, that makes a lot of money. But you know what's so interesting is... Vanderbilt told him, all you have to do is ask. All you have to do is ask, and I'll wipe your debt away. And he wouldn't do it. Uh, he wouldn't do it because he, it was sort of a point of honor for him. I think in some ways that story, by contrast, is a good one for us to, to ponder because what we're invited to here in James chapter 5 is all you have to do, child of God, is ask. All you have to do is ask, and your Father will give you what you need and what he sees is best for you. So with that as sort of an introduction here, I, I want to read through James chapter 5 and listen along as, we, as, as I read this. We're in James chapter 5, starting in verse 13. I also have the text up here if you don't have a copy of the scriptures with you. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another. And pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. 
And he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. This is God's word. As we move through this passage today, I'm just going to kind of try and move verse by verse here at first, uh, at the, the beginning of this sermon, and then on towards the end, I'll just draw several lessons out of this. So follow along with me uh, in your text, or I'll keep it up here so that you can uh, keep your eyes on it as we move through this. Um, in verse uh, 13 and 14, we see he begins with these sort of three uh Questions: is anyone, is anyone among you experiencing? And then he fills in the blank. Suffering? Are you cheerful? Are you sick? He begins uh, with these first two, though they seem to sort of balance each other. Is anyone among you suffering? He says. The word for suffering is very general. He had mentioned this same kind of suffering in the passage just above. He spoke about the prophets, who were examples of suffering and patience in the midst of, the, of challenges. And what he says is, if you're suffering... Christian, then pray. Very simple. Is anyone among you, and you can think of him kind of looking out at this congregation, is anyone among you, uh, all you in the church, suffering? Certainly there are some. Even this morning, there are some. And the encouragement that we receive from James here is, then pray. Turn to God in prayer. And then he goes on, and again, like I said, he sort of balances this. He says, is anyone cheerful? So now he's got a whole uh, other set of circumstances in mind. Is anyone among you cheerful? And the words, uh, again, it's a very broad one. He's just saying something like, does anyone have reason for thankfulness in their hearts this morning? And again, as we are gathered together, uh, I'm sure that this is true for some of us. There are some of us who just came in and we are cheerful. Things are going easily for you, perhaps. Uh, or as you look at your circumstances, nonetheless, you realize God has been very kind to me. And so what he says is, if you're cheerful, then sing praises to the Lord. Sing praises. It seems that uh, his point here is, in whatever circumstance you find yourself, turn towards God. In whatever circumstance you're in, the natural reference for the Christian is God himself. We should speak to him, whether it's a request for help in time of suffering or simply the overflow of cheerfulness in our hearts from the things that the Lord has done for us. Your Father in heaven loves you. He gives us life and breath, Paul says in Acts 17. The psalmist says in Psalm 127, he gives his beloved sleep. Uh, we know that he gives us food and drink and clothes, the things that we need, Jesus says, for our daily needs. All that we have and experience comes from him, from our Father who loves us. So Christians should be awake to this fact. Our reference in all situations is God. And so our heart should turn to him, whether in suffering or in joy, in rejoicing. Turn to God, either in prayer or in praises, in sorrow or in joy. We should turn to the Lord. He goes on, though, and he, he then makes this slightly more specific application. Is anyone among you sick? 
again, this among you, he's sort of, he's looking out at the church as a whole. Is anyone in this congregation sick? And then he gives a very specific prescription. Let him or her call for the elders of the church and let them, that is the elders, pray over this person and anoint, anoint that person with oil. So these two actions here are, uh, are, are, they're not often connected in scripture. Um, this pray over him, the, the phrase itself implies that the person is maybe um, bed bound. They're not able to get up. Uh, pray over is, it's specific. The preposition is there in Greek as well. And it, in, it implies that this person has some sort of debilitating illness, a sickness that is keeping them down. And that's, of course, implied in the fact that they don't go to the elders themselves. They call for the elders to come to them. Now, this, I don't think, means that we, we can only call the elders to prayer on our behalf if, this, if the illness is very, very serious. But at least it paints a picture for us of the kind of illness that's in view in this passage. This person is particularly sick or weak, the word also implies, unable to get up, perhaps. And so they call for the elders, and the elders, in response, do these two things. They pray, and then they anoint with oil. You know, the anointing with oil is unique, uh, almost unique in Scripture. It's, uh, there's only one other place in the New Testament where anointing with oil is connected with healing. In Mark 6, the disciples go out, Jesus sends them out, and uh, he, he, one of the things that they do is they anoint with oil, and it says people are healed uh, at that time, Mark six thirteen. So it's not as if this is sort of a common prescription that happens all over the place. And yet, James is implying that there's some sort of importance to it here. It could be that the oil is medicinal. In the ancient world, uh, oil was, was one of the most common medicines that was prescribed even by Galen, a very famous uh, Greek physician, for uh, the healing generally of injuries, not just sicknesses, but some sort of injury. So it's possible that the anointing with oil here is actually medicinal. That is, it's intended as sort of uh, medicine plus, plus prayer is in view here. It's, it's not really clear. Um, perhaps more likely, the idea of anointing with oil is that uh, this person is being specifically marked out for God's attention. They are being set apart. And this same sort of thing happened uh, somewhat similar in the Law of Moses. The priests were anointed with oil, so that they were kind of set apart as, uh, as God's people in this way for him to ha- give special attention to them. Perhaps that's what's in view here. Again, it's not... It's not totally clear why the anointing happens here. Is it more uh, kind of a consecration? That is a spiritual uh, anointing, if you will, kind of an anointing that, that is meant to draw God's attention to them for that reason? Or is it meant to be sort of a prescription from the doctor? Um, unclear. The anointing, like I said, it's, it's only mentioned one other time in Scripture. But what James does say here is that this anointing should be done in the name of the Lord. And that just uh, that brings to mind exactly what Jesus said. Uh, John chapter 14, Jesus said, Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. 
So this anointing is, is it's not just sort of the application of oil itself as if that's, you know, magical, uh, if that, as if that carries the power in itself. It's the fact that this anointing in some way marks this person out uh, so that they're anointed in the name of the Lord. It's, it's in Jesus' name specifically that this person is supposed to be anointed. And it seems like whatever the connection is that James is drawing, it, he's intentionally pointing to the fact that this is done in the power of Christ. Whatever you ask in my name, I'll do it. Uh, what seems more important here, rather, is this next, is, is the prayer itself. And so if you look at verse 15, it's actually the prayer. The anointing is not mentioned again. Uh, he doesn't specifically connect the anointing with the healing. What he says in verse 15 is, the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. This is, this is a difficult passage. This is... Uh, this is a passage that has caused uh, many difficulties, in fact, in church history. So I just want to pause here and ask this question, what is this prayer of faith that James has in mind? And I'll, I'll try to kind of sketch an outline of what it is that he means, even if we can't uh, nail, nail down all the specifics. This word that he uses for prayer here, he actually uses uh, three different nouns and two different verbs for to pray or prayer through this passage. So it, there's, there's, like a, there's a lot of synonyms that he uses in this passage. It's not as if he's just speaking about one kind of prayer. And the word here for prayer is it's a word that often means vow in other uses in the New Testament. It can mean a request made of God, this prayer of faith, uh, as if uh, someone's making a, stating their wish or their, their request to God. It, it also has this idea of having uh, made a vow to God. It's not totally clear what exactly he means by using this near synonym for prayer. Why does he choose this word for vow or wish instead of just the common word for prayer? It could be that he's making a connection with what he said just above this in verse 12. He warned the Christians there not to take a, an oath, a specific oath, different word for oath and vow. But he said, don't take an oath either by heaven or uh, by uh, the earth. Simply say yes or no. Be straightforward, direct. Don't be deceitful in any way. Perhaps his encouragement here with this vow of faith that leads to healing is something like, I'm turning to you, Lord. All that I have is in you. Please help me. My vow is this, Lord. All my trust is in you. Something like that. The request, in either case, is one that's made to God himself. And that's what's being emphasized by the word faith. This prayer of faith. And the emphasis is not on having enough faith. It's not on the amount of faith, but simply on the elder's trust in Christ himself. Again, this is somewhat complex, but just track with it. He says, the prayer of faith, whose prayer? It was the elder's prayer. This is not the prayer of the sick person. This is the prayer of the elders on behalf of this sick person. And what he says uh, here is not intended to emphasize the, the degree of faith, the strength of faith that the elders have. I, I don't think that's in view at all, but it's the object of faith. 
And, of course, uh, faith in the New Testament is always focused on Jesus. The question is, do you believe that Jesus is the Son of God? Do you believe that Jesus of Nazareth is the one who is the Christ, the anointed one from God? So the emphasis is not so much on having enough faith, but it's on the object of faith, namely Christ himself. As I mentioned, the faith is not the faith of the sick person. It's the faith of the elders in this case. And I think we can at least say this. Apparently there is, apparently based on this passage, there's a a type of request made by faith in Jesus that does lead to healing. That at least is what James is teaching here. This is one of these passages that uh, I said it's been controversial. If you know much about church history, this is where the Roman Catholic Church bases their doctrine of extreme unction. That is the blessing that they give uh, at the end of someone's life as a way of uh, kind of guaranteeing grace or their entrance into uh, their, their acceptance with God. And uh, so they understand this to mean not a physical healing. In fact, if you, if you understand anything about the way that the Roman Catholic Church applies this, they sort of go the opposite direction. It's not as if this prayer will physically heal the person. Rather, it's the opposite. This prayer guarantees a spiritual salvation. And um, it's not without reason. Uh, the prayer of faith... It will save, James says. That word for save, if you have the ESV, it says save. I think the New American Standard has restore or something like that. Literally, it says save. And it's the word that's often used for salvation, spiritual salvation. Uh, And then, of course, James says as well, the Lord will raise him up. Raise him up is a a very close synonym with resurrection. So as we read this, it's at least possible to read that and think, Well, the promise isn't a physical healing. The promise is some sort of spiritual salvation in the future. Uh, The only thing is, it just doesn't make sense then why you would do this for a sick person in particular. Why not just for everybody? (laughs) Why not just have this prayer of faith for everybody if you can guarantee people's salvation? It seems that James is, he is concerned. There is some sickness among the church here. What, What we know about this church is that it's a troubled church. It's a church with lots of divisions. It may be that the sicknesses are God's judgment on the church. We do see that elsewhere in Scripture. There are times where God gives physical sickness, even death, in order to judge his believing children so they're not ultimately destroyed, so they don't ultimately wander away from him. So I think... I think it is a real healing. It's a real physical healing that's in view here. It's not, it's not just a spiritual salvation. Although James's words are, they are somewhat ambiguous. <laughs> uh, he could have, he could have just chosen words. The Lord will heal this person immediately. And he could have used the word for physical healing that he uses in the very next verse. But I think his point is there is a kind of prayer. It does lead to physical healing. And that prayer is a prayer of faith. That is faith in Jesus. Now, for most of us here, if you know much about the church today, again, this is sort of a divided question. There are churches that think that the reason that some prayers for healing aren't answered is a failure 
of the amount of faith, the sufficiency of faith in the person making the prayer. And I just, I don't think that's the emphasis here. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians 12, if you have your Bibles. In this passage, we see Paul referring to a specific kind of faith. And I think this is a helpful comparison passage for us as we consider what does he mean the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick. I think he's speaking not so much about the amount of faith as a specific kind of faith that's, that's given as a gift. In 1 Corinthians 12, he's speaking to the Corinthian church here about uh, different kinds of gifts, spiritual gifts. And he says um, in uh, verse 4, there are varieties of gifts, but the same spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it's the same God who empowers them all and everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the spirit for the common good. To one is given through the spirit the utterance of wisdom. And to another, the utterance of knowledge, according to the same spirit. To another, faith by the same spirit. To another, gifts of healing by the one spirit. To another, working of miracles. To another, prophecy. To another, the ability to distinguish between spirits, etc., etc. He continues his list there. But what I want to point out is he says there's a kind of faith that's a gift of the spirit to only some. He's saying here the spirit gives specific gifts, different gifts among the church body. And some people receive this gift of faith in a way that others don't. It's not, again, this is one of those challenging passages. It's not entirely clear how this faith is, is distinguishable by us, by the church. Except do notice that he says right after to another faith by the same spirit, to another gifts of healing by the one spirit. There seems to be a close connection here, perhaps, between gifts of faith and these kind of gifts of healing. But notice this. It's not the individuals themselves who call down these gifts. It's the spirit who gives this gift. It is the spirit who gives this gift of faith that is in some way connected with healing. So let us not jump to conclusions here and think that it's a failure of these elders who are praying in this instance is a failure of faith on their part. It's simply that apparently they don't have this specific kind of prayer of faith that's being referred to here. However, what's so interesting is he doesn't say, ask, ask if your elders have that prayer. Ask if your elders have that prayer of faith. Ask if they have that gift. What he says is, is anyone among you sick? Call for the elders. Have them pray over him. And this specific prayer of faith will save that person. It will lead to their physical healing. James, uh, so just these points. What is the prayer of faith? The emphasis is not on the amount of faith. It's on the specific kind of faith that's a gift of the Spirit to certain people at certain times. Notice as well, James does not imply that every prayer made for healing will inevitably lead to healing. And if you look at your passage here and you think, well, he just says the prayer of faith will save the one who's sick. Absolutely, that's true. But 
what we have to do is we have to interpret Scripture with Scripture. So let's start with the close context here. The rest of this book gives us several very clear evidences that it's not as if every time someone suffers, they will immediately be healed. He opens his letter, James chapter 1, verse 2, by saying, Count it all joy, my brothers and sisters, when you endure various kinds of trials, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. James has insight that some people in the church are going to suffer, and their suffering will not be relieved immediately. Because God has a purpose to teach them perseverance. And again, in our own chapter here, in James chapter 5, in verses 7 through 12, he's encouraging the church to have patience in the midst of suffering. Patience in the midst of suffering. Now, brothers and sisters, if God intended to heal every person in every instance with a single prayer, you wouldn't need patience. All you'd need is to pray immediately. So whatever he's intending here, it's very clear. It's not as if every prayer for healing inevitably and immediately leads to healing. There is, though, a kind of prayer. And he encourages these Christians to seek that prayer, to seek prayer from the, the elders themselves. The main point here is that this request made in faith to God, uh, in faith in Christ, can lead to physical healing. And so I think the lesson we walk away with is that anytime we have a physical illness, the first place we turn is to God himself. Doesn't mean we don't use medicine, but it does mean that even as we seek these other resources that God's given us, we ask him, Lord, will you please use this to heal me? Please, Father, do this uh, for me, for your child. And this, of course, matches closely what we saw in the opening verse, in, verses, uh, in verse 13. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone, uh, does anyone have a cheerful heart? Let him sing praises in every circumstance, including sickness. Our hearts should incline to the Lord, and we should turn to him in specific speech, asking him for what we need, including here in sickness. Sickness, uh, we do see in this, the very next verse, um, it may be, or excuse me, in the, the second half of this verse, it may be in relation to specific sin in our lives. You see that in the second half of verse 15? And if this sick person has committed sins, he will be forgiven. There are times where physical suffering is the result of specific sins that we've committed, consequences for our actions. There is not a guaranteed connection here. And I hope you're tracking with me, brothers, sisters. This is, I, I don't mean to qualify this sermon to death, but there are a lot of, a lot of uh, intricacies here. We know from the rest of Scripture, again, that not every suffering in our lives is related to sin that we've committed. And we have a whole book of the Bible just for that. The book of Job teaches us that often the righteous suffer for their righteousness. Job is introduced in the Old Testament as the most righteous man in the land. And for that reason, he draws the attention of God's enemies. And God tests his faith. He, he puts him to the test. It wasn't Job's sin that caused his suffering. But there are times when sins do lead to specific 
physical consequences in our lives. And we can think here of 1 Corinthians 11. Again, the church in Corinth was a troubled church, not unlike the church that James is writing to, one that was highly divided, factionalized. And so you've got these different parties of Christians within the church who are arguing amongst themselves, and some of them apparently gather together and do, they, they celebrate the Lord's Supper just in their own small gathering, uh, just with their group of friends, and they've cut out the poor specifically, it sounds like. And those people, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, 30 and 31, he says that God has in fact caused illness, sickness. It's the same word here, this word for weakness or sickness. And in some cases, he has, uh, some of those believers have died, in fact. He says, God judges you with these physical judgments so that you don't, so that you are not judged by him permanently. That is eternally. You don't lose your salvation. There are times where God's judgment is poured out in physical suffering on our lives because he wants to draw us back to him. And James simply acknowledges that. If this person has committed some sin that's led to this suffering in their life, that will be forgiven them. And the idea is simply this, that, that the, the, the connection that requires a physical suffering in their life is now broken. God is going to free them from that judgment. They are forgiven for that sin in terms of the physical and temporal suffering that they have. Sickness may be the result of a specific sin, but it's not guaranteed. And that's why, again, just look at his exact wording. He says, if he has committed sins. See that in the middle of the, the very last line of verse 15? If this person has committed sins. It's not, an, it's not a guarantee that they have. James doesn't assume it. He simply says, you should look for it. Consider that there may be a connection between sin that the person has committed and this suffering. And then in verse 16, of course, then he turns to apply this more generally. And this is, again, one of these passages that just makes us say, it's not just some kind of unique uh, prayer that only elders can do that leads to this sort of healing. He says in verse 16, two things, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. So now he's looking out at the whole church, all the brothers and sisters. He's moved past just the elders here and he's saying, every one of us, therefore, has this responsibility to each other. We ought to confess our sins and we ought to uh, we, we ought to pray for one another. And then he does use this word for physical healing so that you may be healed. So it's not, it's not merely confined to elders, this, this kind of prayer for healing. It's something that we all are invited to do to one another, for one another. And you know, this confession of sins here, it does at least draw our attention to the fact maybe it is because of divisions in the church. Maybe James has in view some sort of sickness some sort of physical suffering that's actually very similar to what we saw in 1 Corinthians 11. That suffering that was brought on by divisions in the church. We know this is a troubled church. James has spent most of the letter saying, you're tearing each other apart with your words. Be careful. Don't you know what causes quarrels and fights among you? It's these desires that you have, selfish desires that are causing these fights within the church. So perhaps when he says, confess your sins to one another, he's speaking specifically to those sort of sins of slander, hurt, offenses that come from wrongs done between brothers and sisters. Again, it's somewhat kind of frustratingly ambiguous. 
It just says, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. What we walk away from this passage with, from these verses with, is that God cares for our physical healing. He has the resources for it. And he's asked us to turn to him, to make our requests known to him when we have these sort of sufferings. He's able to heal us. So come to him. It may be, it may be that there's sins that we've committed against our brothers and sisters in Christ in our own church body here that we need to repent of and confess to one another and pray for one another so that that healing, not just the physical healing, but the healing of divisions among the body of Christ happens. In any case, he's encouraging us God has the resources. Turn to him. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Both calling the elders as well as praying for one another within the church. And I I think, though, again, I I just want to kind of put another qualification on this. Let's not be too quick to assume suffering in someone else's life is caused by sin. Don't assume the worst of your brothers and sisters. Don't assume that others are hiding sin. He just says this. If he's committed sins, he'll be forgiven. Confess your sins to one another. So let us, I think what we should do is we should do something like this. We should at least ask the question. When we suffer and when others suffer, do I have unconfessed sin? Do I have unrepented of sins in my life? Things that I need to turn away from. If so, find a brother or sister and ask them. Have, take the step of accountability. Confess your sins and ask for prayer. Don't assume, but do consider. And then in verse 17, verses 17 and 18, he gives a specific example. Uh, he, he said, I, sorry, I skipped over this, the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Prayer has a specific power, not the prayer itself. Again, we don't want to kind of imbue our actions with some sort of magical or sacramental power. God is powerful, but our prayers do, in fact, lay hold of the throne of heaven. And he gives as an example, Elijah. And notice what he says in verse 17. He, he said the, at the end of 16, the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it's working. Don't think righteous in terms of kind of the the few, the saintly, the holy that are high and above first-tier Christians or something like that. Righteous is what we all are in Christ by faith. James has made that clear. James chapter 2, he talks about the fact that righteousness is something that we get by faith, by, by faith that works itself out in obedience to God. But he does say Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. He's not trying to put Elijah above us. He's not saying, well, Elijah was unique. Elijah was a prophet. No, no, quite the opposite. He's saying Elijah was human. (laughs) He's just like us. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. And he prayed fervently that it might not rain. Three years and six months it did not rain on the earth. This goes back, takes us back to 1 Kings 17 and 18. God told Elijah, there's going to be a drought. And Elijah prophesies that. He, He says that to the king. And what James informs us here is that Elijah was actually praying that. 
If you go back to 1 Kings 17, it's interesting. Elijah says to the king, the only things that are going to happen are by my word. So it's as if Elijah makes himself the man with the power. But what James points out is it's not his own power. It was a power that was opened by prayer. It's the power of God. And, of course, we see that because this drought, this power over heaven and earth is, is not a power within our grasp as humans. Rather, Elijah was just a man like us. He was just a person. But his prayer led to this drought. And verse 18, he prayed again, and heaven gave rain and the earth bore its fruit. These are the, the, the natural outworkings of God's creative power in our world. Human prayer unleashes divine power, if you will. So let me try and draw our attention to just three lessons here in James chapter 5. First, we've said this already, so I'll be brief, but take this away from this passage here. In every season, we should speak to God. In every season, we should speak to God. Jesus so frequently encourages his followers, don't hesitate to come to the Father. And when your prayer is not immediately answered, he says in Luke 18, Continue to pray. The, the parable of uh, the, the widow and the unjust judge, Jesus tells, in order to teach his believers persistence in prayer. So in every season, whether you're rejoicing or whether you're suffering, whether you have specific needs or you have lots to give thanks for, make your requests known to God specifically in speech. Specifically in asking God verbally for what you need, in suffering or joy, our inclination as believers should be toward our Father in heaven. Speak your heart to him in request for help and in rejoicing for what you have, in thanks for the things that you enjoy. Every kindness that we experience is a kindness from our Heavenly Father. So in every season, we should speak to God. Secondly, we learn in this passage that God encourages us to trust him for all our needs, including healing from sickness. He encourages us to turn to him anytime we have needs, and he doesn't put limits on it. He includes these sickness. So I've, I've said already, don't hesitate to use available medical means. Again, we saw in the book of James, he expects suffering lasts oftentimes in the Christian life. We see as well, even uh, in the rest of the New Testament, that sickness is not always taken away. Sickness is not always taken away. God often has his purposes, not in the healing, but in the trial. It may be that God intends to do his good work in me or in you through the sufferings that we endure. God's trials are intentional. They're not accidental. So we look, for instance, uh, Paul writes to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 5. He says, take a little wine for your stomach and your frequent ailments. Don't just drink water. You know, this is one of those pa passages where you just, you just have to, to pause. It really helps us put our, our, our Bibles together when we say, we know Paul had powers of miraculous healing. We read about that in Acts chapter 19. Even like things that he had touched could be passed along. If somebody can't come to Paul, Paul can't go to them. Somebody acts as this go-between. It says, you know, this is basically, this is carrying the power of God, miraculous healing, so that Jesus gets the honor. 
Paul was able to do those miraculous healings. But he writes to Timothy, drink a little wine for your stomach, for your ailments. <laughs> he doesn't just say, hey, listen, here's a handkerchief for you. <laughs> That's what had happened in Acts 19. He doesn't just send along an item. There are times where healing doesn't happen. And we don't know why. We're not given the mystery, the explanation for all of God's hidden purposes. Paul was able to do miracles of healing. There are times where that healing doesn't happen. He writes to Titus, I left Trophimus behind in Miletus, sick. <laughs> Why does he leave Trophimus behind sick if he's able to do healings at will? It's, it, it's, it's God's purposes. There are times when the prayer of faith heals, and there are times when God doesn't grant those healings, at least not immediately. But God nonetheless wants to encourage us to trust him for all our needs, including healing from sickness. So you can see those passages there. And of course, most importantly, 2 Corinthians 12, Paul's own thorn in the flesh. He said he prayed three times. God, please take this away. We don't know exactly what the thorn in the flesh was, but that description, thorn in the flesh, pretty clearly implies some sort of physical suffering. And God's answer to him was, I'm not going to take it away. My, my strength is perfected in your weakness, Paul. It's a good thing that you suffer in this way. And that may be the answer he gives to us as well. But we do know that he encourages us to come to him every time we have a need and not to give up, to trust him. This prayer of faith that we're encouraged to have here is something that the Spirit gives. The prayer of, of, of faith, these healings are gifts of the Spirit. So we ought to pray for them. We ought to seek them. And we ought to wait on God when we don't receive them and trust him. He loves us as his own children. There are times when God chooses not to heal. Nonetheless, he wants us to turn to him. And finally, pray because God is listening. I think this is the, the most fundamental takeaway from this passage. God is listening. In our good times and in our hard times. We don't have to do any difficult task to earn a hearing with God. You know, James makes reference to Elijah praying. Elijah's just a man like us, he says. If you go back to that passage in 1 Kings 17 and 18, there's this famous interaction between Elijah, the prophet of God, and these prophets of Baal. The prophets of Baal beat themselves mercilessly until they bleed, it says, as was their custom, in order to make their God hear them. Brothers and sisters, your God made his son bleed so that we don't have to crucified his own son in our place so that we can turn to him with our needs. Our God is listening to us all the time, unlike Baal, who required of his followers suffering before he would hear their prayers. Our God hears us in suffering and in joy. On the sunny days and on the cloudy days, when things are difficult and when we're rejoicing, God doesn't... We don't have to make up for our sins by doing penance or deeds of contrition. We don't have to earn our favor with him. God wants us to trust him, and our trust looks like the response of speech to him. Lord, please help me. Lord, thank you for the good things that you've done for me. Lord, strengthen me in the midst of this suffering. Do your good purposes in me. Test me. Try me. Teach me perseverance. Thank you for your son. How would it be if you knew that your father was close by, 
just a telephone call away. That he was listening, that he cared for you, and that he had the resources that you need for all of your concerns, every little need in your life. You'd pick up the phone. You'd call or text. Some of you would. God wants us to do that. He's listening. He's close and he cares. He is accessible to us. And so in every, in every season of life, he's encouraging us. Turn to me. Turn to me and ask for your needs. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, we ask you, teach us to pray. And as we pray, Lord, help us to pray in faith, not to doubt your power. We are weak. There are times where, no doubt, we have sinned in a way that offends you deeply. Be merciful to us, Father, I pray. If there are sins among us, in our body, that have led to this kind of suffering. Would you mercifully expose them and help us to confess our sins to one another? Would you please heal any outstanding divisions in our church, Father? And I pray that you would bring physical healing as well as the elders and as all of the brothers and sisters here pray for one another. Hear our prayers, Lord. Teach us to trust you with a simple, childlike faith. In Jesus' name we pray to you. Amen.